0: welcome back to jews on film my name is harry Sasser, and as always i am one of your jews on this film that we're discussing this week and uh, as always i'm joined by my co-host daniel zano
1: Hi, Harry. Uh, My name is Daniel Zana. I am a documentary filmmaker and video editor and also a Jew. Our guest today is a writer, book author, father of five, and podcast host. He co-hosts Unorthodox with Stephanie Budnick and Leah Liebowitz, and Gatecrashers, the new eight-part series detailing the history of the Jews and the Ivy League. He's also the former beliefs columnist for the New York Times and author of Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting, and The Soul of a Neighborhood. Mark Oppenheimer, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you. So excited to be a Jew on Film with you. We are excited to have you here and and discuss the 1992 film School Ties directed by Robert Mandel. We start out each each, uh, episode with kind of level setting and kind of like figuring out where everyone's coming from. So I wanted to ask you sort of what was your relationship to School Ties sort of growing up and why did we ultimately land on this film?
2: Okay. Well, School Ties came out. I don't know if it was spring of 92 or fall of 92. I was a high school senior class of 1992. And then this movie comes out with all of these, you know, handsome. And I, I, by the way, I went to a prep school, not unlike St. Matthew's, um, as depicted in the film, though we did not have mandatory chapel, but it looked exactly like St. Matthew's and, um, everyone was just as attractive as in St. Matthew's, we all, we all looked like Matt Damon or Brendan Fraser, or Chris O'Donnell, Ben Affleck, with there's just, you know, just one ripped buff um, uh, gentleman after another, uh, though my school was co-ed. So, but, you know, then there's this movie out about, I remember seeing it in the theaters, you know, here's this movie about, um, you know, Jude. A Jew at a prep school, and I thought, hey, I was a Jew at a prep school. I mean, there were other Jews. It's not, it wasn't like Saint Matthew's, but um, you know, I totally dug it. And then within just a few years, so many of the cast of it, you know, you had Goodwill Hunting coming out just a couple years later. You know, Damon and Affleck hit it big. Right. Chris O'Donnell hit it big. Uh Cole Hauser, of course, in the unimprovably superb Dazed and Confused, making his big screen. I don't know his debut, but but you know, big strong character role in this movie. And, and sophomore year was when Dazed and Confused came out. So all of this cast of characters like crashes over me over the next two or three years. It's one of those movies, you know, like a fast times at Ridgemont high where the casting, they basically found all these people who would go on to be big stars. And it's, it's kind of amazing what they did. So I've always been a fan of this movie. Uh, I was super excited to re- revisit it with you.
1: Yeah. It's i uh, I'd never seen it before. Harry had you, is this uh, your first time?
0: First time seeing it. And I, I'd like, you were saying, I was really taken with the cast and what they would become. I mean, you didn't even talk about Brendan Fraser, you know, our lead David right. Green who doesn't necessarily reach some of the heights as of, of course, like Matt, Dave and Ben Affleck and some of the Come rest on, of the, the cast. But yeah. The mummy and all its <laughs> right. sequels. You know Come on. And I, and I will say this is pretty apt. I don't know. This will hopefully be coming out in the next couple of weeks, but right. it, it's kind of like we're in the middle of a Brendan Fraser. Trae- well, what what she doing? The whale? I don't even know. He's he's got the whale coming out and people say he's going to make a big Oscar campaign. You know, hopefully we'll listen back to this in a couple of months and know that he actually won the Oscar and feel like we called it first, but it definitely feels (laughs) like, it definitely feels like We were riding the wave.
2: As somebody who's very interested in, um, in- you know, weird blogs that keep track of celebrity plastic surgery. I haven't revisited that lately, but that's mm-hmm. one of, you know, that's my form of late night porn yeah, is not sure. actual pornography, but celebrity plastic surgery, um, you know, mm-hmm. video slideshows uh, or photos, photo arrays. Uh, Brendan Fraser's hair loss has been of, of endless fascination to uh-huh. these, these people, the, the gossip rags for a long time. And what was interesting to me was you could see it. Even here. I mean, the guy was probably mm-hmm. he wasn't a teenager. He's probably 21, 22, playing 17. And already you're seeing weird comb over action. You're seeing them do weird things to make it look like he has a full head of hair. Uh, but yeah, no, Brendan Fraser, absolutely for the win in this movie. Strong role. I mean, you know, uh, a culturally appropriate casting. He's not Jewish, but they have him playing playing the Jew. So, you know, but we'll take it honorary Jew. I'm good with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think reading into the casting, I read a few articles because at this time of a recording in November 2022, we are roughly 30 years from when it came out. And, um, wow, um you know, I think a lot of different uh, actors who finally settled into their roles had tried out for the David part. You know, you had Damon trying out for the, the David part. You had uh, Affleck, I think. And they were... J- just kind of between this movie and then this other movie that came out earlier called The Outsiders by Coppola, that was also another film that sort oh, of mentioned. Oh, The Outsiders. Yeah, in this, Tom in this Cruise, article. Tom
2: Cruise, C. Thomas Howell. I mean, all of these guys. Yeah, no, The Outsiders, astonishing movie. Look, I mean, you're coming at the end of a 12-year run of unbelievably good movies for teen culture. You're coming mm-hmm. at the end of a 12-year run of Cameron Crowe with, you know, movies like um, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It kicks off at 79 or 80 with Valley Girl, with with, uh, with Moon Zappa and Nicolas Cage, um, all the John Hughes movies, Breakfast Club, you know, some kind of wonderful Ferris Bueller, et cetera. This is kind of- I think you have to mention Dead Poets Society,
0: of course, mm. also. What year that was that? Is- all right, well, wait, I, just, I just confirmed it. I think it's 89. I think it's a couple of years before yeah. school ties. And these two movies well, like really exist, I think okay. in a very
2: similar plane. It is true. And I can, if you want, I can talk about some of the similarities because the prep school movie and the 80s movie and the movie that has the one token Jew, they're all kind of in these overlapping circles. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, th- this was in some ways, if if this was three years after Dead Poet Society, it's amazing how many tropes it borrowed from Dead Poet Society. Yeah,
1: right, absolutely. Absolutely. And they all seem to take place in like the fall and winter because that's when like it just looks the prettiest with all the foliage. It's the
0: feel. Yeah, yeah,
1: totally. You know, it's all it's- my
2: memories from prep school take place in the fall. It's absolutely true. Like what you want are the leaves changing. This movie was shot at the Middlesex School in Massachusetts, which is very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Dead Poet Society, interestingly, shot in the Mid Atlantic states, which is kind of a cheat at St. Andrew's mm-hmm. School in Delaware. But that's still, they they faked it well. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's the fall. We do fall really well in New England. It's kind of our thing
1: right no oh, that makes sense i mean nobody really wants to hear like the cicadas buzzing off during production that's kind of a pain in the butt so um yeah i'm now i'm really excited to check it out uh you know to check out this film in detail with you
0: harry what do you think you think it's that time I'm going to cut you off first. Yeah, because please. I, I we, always we jump get to the IV to be summary. <laughs> I, always, I, I always save my one point for when you call oh. me on just to make you look bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, uh, but the one thing I also want to point out, exactly, is that this movie was also written by Dick Wolf, which right. I think in oh, terms of the order. cast and crew... Of course. And, and I think right. in terms of age is sort of the Jewishness. And I, I looked it up. He actually has an interesting situation where he had a, I think he was raised by a Jewish father, had a Catholic mother, but mm. this movie, you know, from what I've read is very much based on his own experiences yeah, right. in prep school growing up and being sort of a Jewish kid. So where that do you go to prep lot. school? Do you know? I, I don't have the answer offhand. I'm sure I'm, I'm in a Wikipedia.
2: you you carry on. I'm going to go to Wikipedia and find this exactly. out right you now. You get that answer
0: for me. I'll, I'll finish the point. Cause it but matters. Yeah, You
2: finish your point.
0: So, but I agree with you. I think it totally matters because I think I I did have some thoughts about the sort of non-Jewish casting of this. And it's obviously one of those things. The movie was made 30 years later today. It probably wouldn't have at least cast the same lead. And I actually think it is a little bit relevant in this case, which I'll get to once we kind of jump into the movie. But I do think that having Dick Wolf kind of writing about his own experiences being raised Jewish definitely. Let me pop in here and say this.
2: He went to Andover. He went to the Gunnery, which is now called the Frederick Gunn School because they wanted to downplay. They didn't want to make it sound like it was, in fact, an armory. But right. those of us from New England prep schools regret that there's no longer a school called the Gunnery, which was sort of awesome. That's it's not. yeah. Um, I don't know. So the the Gunnery is at 9 through 12. So is Andover. So it looks as if maybe he did a year or two at the Gunnery, which would have been a more sort of closed off, small town kind of place, maybe more anti-Semitism, so, hmm. then went to Andover. Now, look, he was born 1946, so he would have been getting out of Andover in like 19, 19- 64 Five, I want. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, da, 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 da. So forty-six, he would have been twenty and sixty-six. So like sixty-three or so. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of Jews at Andover by that point. I, I would be very dubious that this was an Andover experience, but it it could have been an experience at the gunnery, and maybe it's why he left. So I don't know. Maybe it bears further re- research. But I in, was intrigued uh, to see that he wrote beautiful. a good a good script. Yeah,
0: I was gonna. That, that's really interesting, and definitely demands a little bit of further research because I think that that plays a big part into the actual movie, and then the the other element of dick wolf that i think he brings into this is and i i obviously knew he had written it before i had cultivated these sort of feelings but it it felt a little bit like an extended law and order episode you know for for worse just 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 in the way that it was a little bit sort of sexless and dramatic and you know the the kind of the morality play that was going on and maybe this was my read just because i knew but Sexless, except,
2: except for the big, like naked fight in the shower that I didn't remember at all. First of all, massive amounts of like Matt Damon tush, Ben Affleck tush, tush, a lot of male tush. Uh, This is all about the, the, either the gay male gaze or the female gaze on the men. It is, Mm -hmm. this is a, a absolutely interesting reversal of the t- typically in the, in a movie, especially from the eighties, what you yeah. would have seen yeah. is, is, tit, is breast. Yeah. There would yeah. have been a lot of boobs and this, exactly. no boobs, Amy Locaine, very chaste though. It didn't end well for her in real life. If you've done your research, I can yes. tell you what happened. Yeah, with the her. Yeah. No. But there was some, there was some DUI action. There was actually prison time served. Didn't oh, end oh, well, well for prison, Amy yeah. Um Yikes. But lots of male tush. And then, the the fist fight in the shower between Matt Damon, it it was Matt Damon and Brendan Fraser, Mm -hmm. where you see them from the chest up and it's in the shower, presumably like dicks swinging during this fist fight. I Mm -hmm. thought, holy cow, like how is it that we think of Top Gun now because of the homoeroticism going on? Yes, Nobody ever talks about school ties where literally they were like having a a naked sword fight in the shower. Amazing, yes amazing.
0: I I, I cannot wait to have this discussion when we get into it because I have some thoughts about sort of the circumcision question there and how that I think could have been relevant and perhaps is implied I, I will dive deep into that when we get up to it. But um, I, yeah. think, I think it might be time, unless you want to cut me off this time, Dan. Do you have any more thoughts? <laughs> hey, or? I
1: mean, you know, eye for an eye. Let's, uh, you know. But uh, <laughs> no, I was just going to say that, like, in that article about the 30-year, like, uh, retrospective of this film and things like that, they talked about how seriously uh, considered that that scene was. You know, they had, like, a stunt coordinator on scene, and it was, like, a very... Everyone was a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. I, I've heard, you know, there was some heated uh, discussion between... some. of the cast members after the fact you know a lot of like (laughs) literal dick swinging but also like metaphorical dick swinging in terms of like who's the lead of the film and kind of putting other people in their place um but yeah it's certainly a, a a pivotal scene um but Harry, I think now I feel like it's maybe time. What do you think? Do you think? feel like the
2: scene was sort of the tent pole of the movie? Is that is that what you're saying?
1: No question. No
2: question. It's a long way to go poster. for a good joke anyway. Uh, it, got, <laughs> it got my rods and cones all mixed up. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm, I'm gonna hit us with the IMDB summary if that's Please cool see. with you guys. Yes, yes, yes. In 1959, a star quarterback from a working class family is given an opportunity to attend an elite New England preparatory school, but is conflicted about whether or not to tell his evangelical classmates that he is a Jew.
2: The the only thing that I think. (laughs) (laughs) Evangelical? These guys are like Episcopalians and Lutherans. These are Episcopalians. One guy's a Methodist, not an evangelical Methodist. Boy, they picked the wrong, they picked the wrong doctorate in American religious history to share that. IMDb summary with, what an insanely (laughs) insipid, stupid, I'm sorry, carry on.
0: No, no, it's fine. No, I wish- I wish I could give you a name of who wrote it like uh, some of these summaries actually have a name (laughs) maybe uh, cleverly inserted anonymously (laughs) I hope whoever's listening to this uh, you know has a chance to defend themselves the only thing that I wanted to point out is that they obviously talk about his Jewishness here which you know in the context of some of the other films that we've discussed on Jews on Film it's not always mentioned in the summary Mm, I mean of course I don't think I don't think you could say two or three sentences about this movie without talking about the Jewishness of it because as we'll discuss with the plot it is so central to everything that's going on but Mm -hmm. still worth pointing out that it's that it's right there in the summary i always enjoy that
1: I do feel like for season three, a new feature of the of the IMDb summary should be sort of like a post-game summary of the summary and sort of mm. like see whether or not it actually captures because I think every time you read it, Harry, we all just get incensed for like how reductive and inaccurate they usually are, <laughs> which is why That's we true. are here to provide a little bit more context and, uh, you know, bang out the plot and then discuss the themes and things like that. But we'll do that after we take a quick break and get a word from our sponsors, St. Matthews Academy, this episode. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, we'll we'll be right back um, and we'll come back and discuss School Ties. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Mark Oppenheimer to discuss the film School Ties. Harry, do you want to kick things off for us?
0: Yeah, sure. So the film opens up with David Green. He's played by Brendan Fraser, as we mentioned, and he's a sort of working class Jewish teen living in what we find out to be Scranton, Pennsylvania and uh, in the year 1959. So we see him get into a fight with some bully kind of trade sort of anti-Semitic remarks. And he ends up, we, we see David, that he ends up getting a little bit banged up after this. And he has a, a confrontation with his father where he kind of calls him out and says, you know, you can't make your way through life fighting everything as you go. You kind of have to uh, be a little more protective of yourself. So, uh, and it can risk your future. So we then learn that David has actually given a scholarship to St. Matthew's Catholic Prep School for his senior year, right? He's a senior, so this is only going to be for one year. And it's a football scholarship, so he can help them defeat their rival, St. Luke's, who apparently they've lost to the last couple of years. And uh, we have this big scene. His new coach picks him up from the bus stop, drives him onto campus. And in this interesting exchange, he kind of asks him if he has any dietary restrictions. I uh,
3: meant to ask you, do you have any diet problems? Diet problems? Yeah, is there anything that you can't eat? I can't eat turnips. Turnips. I can't eat them either. (laughs) Well, better let you get settled. These kids, they're going to be a little curious about you. I'm a little curious about them. I mean, nobody ever comes here for just their last year. It's a very unusual situation. They're a great bunch of kids, don't get me wrong, but they're privileged. They take a lot of things for granted. You and I never would. Just play your cards close to the vest. I mean, That's my advice. What do you mean? I mean, don't tell people any more than they need to know.
0: In a very coy way, warns David, maybe don't bring up your Jewishness and keep keep that one to yourself. And that uh, sets off his journey at this prep school.
1: I mean, I think a few things to call out. You know, his dad, before saying goodbye mm-hmm. to him on the train, says some uh, nice words of, uh, you know, like affectionate words to him in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the only time we get a little bit of Avino Mocano later. later.
2: Yeah. It's something like gig Ge is or, uh, yeah. or, or it's, it's like minekins, my child gig Ge right. is be healthy, be well, go, go, go well. No, it's very sweet. I mean, I'm, I'm a little baffled how they ended up a sort of coal mining family in Scranton, not a big Jewish immigrant occupation, right. not, yeah. not entirely unheard of, you know, um, the, the work I've done on Pittsburgh, there were Jews in some of these coal mining towns right across the river from Pittsburgh, but often they were not actually in the mines themselves. They were, you know, small business people or merchants serving the coal miners and, but dad seems to be, yeah, he's a he's a real, um, you know, he's a blue-collar dude. Mom seems to be out of the picture. There seems to be no mom. There are two siblings, one of them, of course, because it's the 50s wearing the the Davy Crockett coonskin cap, yeah, which yep, was yep. required of every young boy in a movie set in the 50s. I think Brendan Fraser may wear one in Blast from the Past, his other movie set back in, the, where he gets nice. sent back to the 50s. Always with a blonde, you know, I think, isn't it Alicia Silverstone in Blast from the Past? And here, you know, oh, maybe yeah. Locaine. I think you're right. um, okay. There's always a fetching blonde with him when he's in the fifties and um yeah i mean he gets sent off he gets put on a bus weirdly there's a direct boss from scranton pa to boston if you looked at the bus uh the front of the bus it says boston like the scranton to boston line. he didn't have to change in new york it just and it dropped him in cabot mass home of saint Matthew's school. So apparently like there's a bus line, there's actually a pipeline for blue collar football players who get in right. rumbles with guys who He's look not like the, the Fonz to right, go right. to St. Matthew's on a direct bus, which is amazing. Um, but he has to get out of town because otherwise the guy who looks like the Fonz one of these days is going to beat him to a pulp. So good thing he gets out of town.
1: It's, it's interesting, too, because he seems to have developed like quite a posse in Scranton who is tolerant of his Judaism. Totally. And he's like very openly Jewish there. But when he gets to the school, we'll talk about that. But, you know, uh, Kokis is the guy, the, the the greaser you alluded to, who calls a machiney bastard after, you right. know, there's this sort of a Jets and Sharks situation up top. But totally. we, we quickly find out that David has a very... Um, Hair trigger, like he's willing to get physical pretty quickly, oh, as you yeah. see later in the film. Um, so he's he's a tough Jew, you know. He's not one of these sort of wimpy Jews, you know. No, he's and, a
2: real street Jew. He's a bruiser, and um, yeah, I mean, and in in the classic outsiders fashion of the Soches versus the Greasers, um, you know, he's a he's a bit of a Soche, a bit of a sort of upper class within the the social ecology of this town. Mm-hmm. He's a classic. He's a classier kid, and the real right. bruisers, you know them because like he's an athlete, which is a which codes as like you know a. Good Good kid. And uh-huh. and the dropouts, the Tufts, you know them because they pull up on their motorcycles in leather jackets. Yeah. Uh, so it's all very clear. The 50s, everything was very clear that way.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think the way you're describing him as this sort of imposing athlete, to me, that was a really interesting choice because it's not necessarily the read that you normally get of the sort of, I think the classic Jewish character that you would see where you see him as the sort of imposing athletic, you know, naturally gifted this, you know, he's the sixth, I think Brendan Fraser is six foot two, you know, he's he's this very imposing athletic presence. And I thought that that was a really interesting coding of a character. And and maybe that's just from movies set in a different era where I kind of associate that sort of Jewish character with a little bit, you know, smaller, more people of the book, a little bit more of the... But how would the plot work then? I mean, he has to be... (laughs) I think that's what's so interesting. It's a real kind of reversal of your expectations. You know, it's you wouldn't think the Jew is the one who's brought in to kind of save no. this like prep school of the, of the sort of, I don't know, like the but, tall strong blondes that you'd expect that right. maybe there was, in the other situation. Look, there were a lot of street
2: Jews. There were a lot of athletic, Jew- I mean, you know, boxing was a Jewish sport in the 1920s sure. and, and, you know, Sid Luxman was a famous New York giant. I mean, there were these guys and, um, you know, I mean, my uncle Dave Schreiber was the quarterback for his high school in Pittsburgh. Of course, nice. you know it was an all Jewish high school, but um, <laughs> awesome. you know there were there were these guys, and he's one of those guys. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the great mystery, of course, is how they found him, and we never do find out how the, how yeah, the right exactly the, the tough Boston Irish coach of the of the Boston Waspy Prep School finds the Jewish kid in Scranton, but they found him. So, yeah, Jim. I
1: wanted to also just call out the uh, the opening sort of church scene, which I thought was uh, comedic, but also it, it sets up early on this honor code, right? So David goes to yes. temple and everyone's kind of doing their prayers, everyone's getting dressed and things like that. David goes in, he's kind of looking around clueless and everyone you know, knows the words by heart and you know, he's sitting up when everyone's standing down. Like it's, it's a little bit, little thin bit of comedy there but the dean sort of introduces this notion of the honor code.
3: Some of you new boys may find that academics and discipline at St. Matthew's are very demanding. I will point out that much of what is policy here, including our cherished honor code, has been established not by me or your teachers, but by your fellow students to be enforced by your own tribunal of prefects, as it has been for the last two centuries. We judge ourselves here, and we judge ourselves by the highest standards. You, my boys, are among the elite of the nation. And we strive here at St. Matthew's to prepare you for the heavy responsibility that comes with favored position. Today, more than ever, this country needs an elite that cares more for honor than for advantage.
1: You know, there's some Jewish elements, which I may say for the, the back half of the podcast, but I just wanted to call that out as something that is important to kind of think about as we move on into the plot.
0: And the other thing we kind of see here, you he's he's worn to, David's worn to protect his identity. And we see he's been wearing this sort of this, this necklace with the on it, this kind of very loud pronouncement of his Jewishness. And I think at first he sort of tucks it in. And then later when he actually gets into his dorm, we see him stuff it into a, uh, I forget what, what kind Band-Aids? of box it was. It was just, yes, yeah, so it's like a band-aids box that it's, he kind of has Curaids. in his. It's
2: Curades. It's mid-century oh. brand Curates, But it, it is band-aids. Interesting. Yeah, I also want to question
0: want to I want to yes. write
2: adhesive bandages flesh colored <laughs> adhesive bandages I also want to problematize the idea that he would have had a big uh magandavid chain you know pendant on a chain I don't know that that Jewish boys were doing that in the <laughs> 50s uh, that would be work for someone of more scholarly pedigree than I but I think that might be um, an anachronism but you know, I'm, who knows.
0: I'm happy you point that out, though, because it's such an interesting anachronism, because I think it fits into the whole school ties of it all. Right. And, and mm-hmm. the, the name we kind of hear it spoken in the film, I think, a little bit later where someone talks about, oh, you don't have your school tie yet. You got to put this on because they had a uniform with matching school ties. That's obviously what it is. And I think that his necklace his my David Ooh. really stands in place of that. You know, Good that's, read how he, Good read. that's how he just singles himself out. And you kind of see it around mm-hmm. his neck. And we'll get to this later when he obviously there's this big momentous moment where he puts it back on. But that that is the first sort of indication of his isolation from everyone else. And that even though he can hide it, you know, under his necklace, it kind of it, it ultimately functions like a school tie. It's it's on the outside. It's it's the first Good. thing you see. So wanted to mention that here. Definitely uh, worth Daniel, mentioning. if you want to get us exactly. And Daniel, if you want to continue us along in the plot. Oh, for bit. sure.
1: You know, so so as Green is uh, you know, arriving at school and he starts to meet his uh his classmates, his fellow football players, you know, we have uh Charlie Dylan played by Matt Damon, his roommate is Chris Reese is played by Chris O'Donnell, and, uh, you know, they're all pretty welcoming of him. They start out, uh, you know, playing some records, dancing. David's got the moves, you know, more so than a lot of the other kids in the class. Um, And and someone, I believe it's either Magoo, played by Anthony Rapp, or it's, uh, you know, Cole Let's see. One of the the classmates was talking about how he got his uh, record player. ...this summer from a friend back home. How much he wanted forty bucks, but I jewed him down to
0: thirty. Thirty? I'll give you twenty-five for it. Look at him! Look at him! He's always trying to get something for nothing, and he's
3: not
1: even Jewish. And it's at this point that David is first introduced to the anti-Semitism at school, and decides to, you know, just keep his head down, not say anything. There's a number of uh, instances throughout the film. Uh, some to the end, you know, are very explicitly anti-Semitic, but these little remarks come up here and there, and David you know, at the beginning, chooses not to say anything. Uh, And then, you know, as as we kind of continue on, the first game is uh, Rosh Hashanah. We know that because his dad calls him up on the phone and gives him a good amount of uh, Jewish guilt. You know, just remember, David, tomorrow's Rosh Hashanah. Uh, And it coincides with the football game. He ultimately decides to to play the game. He wins the game. uh, And then after the game, runs off to the church and prays in the church for Rosh Hashanah Davening. And he says, you know, he's saying the Avinu Malkanu by himself with his kippa on. And uh, the headmaster who's coming back from some sort of event has a, a confrontation with David asking him, you know, what are you doing here? And it kind of gives him the business. This is uh, the headmaster who says, Mr. Green, sir, was it worth
3: it breaking a tradition just to win a football game? Your tradition or mine, sir?
2: Which, by the way, is a comment, a retort that makes no sense. Because he says, was it worth it to break your tradition just for a football game? and then Brendan Fraser says your tradition or mine what does that mean? There's only one tradition he's breaking for the football game Rosh Hashanah unless I'm well, missing something I, well, I think it, sounds yeah. it sounds profound yeah. like, it sounds it like it's done it's a very Dick Wolf moment right. it's like that metaphor actually doesn't track at all it, right. it, it, there's no question what tradition he's breaking it's Rosh Hashanah Yeah,
0: right. I, I think it's both because I think in some sense I force the read-in of like well he's breaking the tradition of there being only Christians at this school and uh, like by introducing a Jewish quarterback it's okay. and he's kind of calling him, the headmaster, out for saying, You don't actually care about me breaking tradition. You just want to put me down. I think it's a little bit of okay. a stretch read. I think it's yeah, exactly I- what you were saying. It's a great Dick Wolf moment. I think there's a couple <laughs> of them later in the movie where <laughs> right. he, because David, he's given a lot of those one liners where he oh, just, yeah. you know, just sends something back at someone and it, well, that's I think said, it, like It always. He's, he's
2: kind of like an, he, you know, he's an idiot savant. And I mean, he's on the one hand, you know, this bruiser, (laughs) roughneck guy from, you know, hey, oh, oh, away from, uh, you know, Scranton, which of course the original hometown of President Biden, but also, he, he comes up with unbelievably quick profundities whenever he needs to put a Gentile in his place, you know, whether it's the headmaster at that moment or then later after, um, you know, the confrontation at the end, or then when, when Matt Damon is driving away in, in the family right. car at the end, like he always says exactly. I mean, my God, the amount of times I've, you know, left a situation, and then the right line has occurred right. to me 10 minutes later. <laughs> you but back. him, it's,
0: it's yeah, always he's got it. Me.
2: You know, the French call it l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. Like, Uh as you're leaving the party and going up the staircase, that's when you remember the thing you should have said. Right. But he always has it. He always has it. He's like, he's he's a prophet. He's basically a prophet.
1: I mean, he has a genetic predisposition to chutzpah, which maybe a lot of these other people at the school are not, uh, you know, inclined. But um, no. You know, I think there's one more thing I want to talk about before we we chop it up here. Is you know, before getting ready for this dance to, to hang out um, with the the girls in in this school, uh, you know, they're getting ready in in sort of the first locker room bathroom scene, and Charlie makes an offhanded remark. They're talking about their perspective, uh, where they're going to go to colleges and things like that, and you know, they mention uh, that you know, they mention you know, all the other schools and they say, Oh, well, don't worry about the Jews. You know, they're not going to be, I don't have any worry. You know, there's not going to be any Jews in the clubs anyway. Um, And so this is another instance of where, you know, anti-Semitism presents itself and David decides, you know, to still keep his head down. So I wanted to ask you, Mark, um, you know, they mentioned not having the Jews in the clubs and I wanted to know, you know, because of your podcast, the Gay Crashers, I wanted to kind of ask if you could sort of paint a picture. Were the Jews in the clubs? Yeah, just give us a little bit of context <laughs> about what what Dylan is talking about, and and you know, okay, paint a first bit of a picture. Of all, yeah.
2: First of all, do we know what year this is? It's. It I just, think I read fifty nine. Fifty nine. Yeah. Fifty nine. Oh, that's interesting. I would have put a little bit earlier because of the clothes, but mm-hmm. um, okay. But it's definitely it's, it's Eisenhower awesome. era. It's no fifty nine is probably about right. I would have said fifty seven or so, but because some of the um, some of the pants are still a bit high waisted mm-hmm. and the, some of the lapels are very big in that post World War II, almost zoot suit sort of way. Right. But um, but fifty nine. I'll buy that. So f- by fifty nine, you definitely look. Um, at the Ivy League, there are quotas keeping – implicit quotas keeping Jews to about 15% of Harvard, about 7 or 8% of Yale – about the same number somewhere in there in Princeton they had all been up much higher in the 1920s Harvard Mm -hmm. at one point was about 28% Jewish in 1926 or 27 and then they said okay and Columbia even more Jewish probably and then they decided these schools have gotten too Jewish and so they began excluding Jews through various subterfuges Um, they wouldn't recruit at high schools Mm -hmm. that were heavily Jewish they began looking for quote geographic diversity it's where the idea of geographical diversity comes from was the Mm -hmm. idea that if you if you look for students in the West and the South and Canada you're likely to find Gentiles so you want fewer, fewer students from New York City, more students from the hinterlands, it, you have a more Gentile school. So by the 58 or so, these schools, again, there's, there are lots of Jews, but the, it's more like 10% than 20 or 30%. Um, are there Jews in the fancy clubs, in the final clubs at Harvard, Porcellian, for example, uh, Fly Club? Are there Jews in the secret societies at Yale, Scroll and Key, Skull and Bones, Wolf? Said, Yeah, a few. Right. Um, you know, at a school that's 10% Jewish, you would think that out of 15 students in a senior society at Yale, 1.5 of them would be Jews. And probably, you know, it's more like one uh right. or some years none. Mm-hmm. Um but if you looked at a five-year slice you'd say that there's, you know, these these clubs are a little bit less Jewish than they're already restricted numbers at the school would indicate but the thing you have to remember about the Ivy League at this point and that would not necessarily have been true at every New England boarding school because teenage boys are less mature and less sophisticated in how they carry themselves than they will be several years later in college right
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah but at the Ivy League universities when you're talking about 19 and 20 year olds these were not places where there was a lot of overt anti-semitism um you it was very um it would have been considered very class classe to go around calling someone a sheeny or a kike or a Heeb. You would right. not have seen an, – and these – you would not have seen a Nazi flag as you did in this movie, uh, you know, when they turn on him and hang a Nazi flag in his – I mean, my god, the Nazis had been – had been our enemies in World War II. People all had older brothers or fathers who had died fighting the Nazis. So the 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 idea, you know, these were patriotic young men. Even if they had some anti-Semitism, they wouldn't have gone to the Nazi flag to express it because nobody right. thought well of Nazis at these schools. So, um, you know, most Jews you talk to from that era at these schools, at the, at the Ivy League schools where these kids are going to, um, are going to graduate to, um, and I've talked to a lot of them, would have said, I almost never encountered anti-Semitism, you know, then they would say, well, I had one roommate who once said that that he envied Jews because we were good at business. Or I had a roommate once who was an evangelical Christian from the South, and he was always concerned for my soul and always saying, you know, maybe I'd want to read some New Testament and get in touch with Jesus. but. You have to search f- oh, and then there were some some fraternities that allegedly, you know, there were at schools that had frats like Dartmouth and Penn, um there was some division. Like there were some fraternities where the Jews went. If you're interested in Greek life, you would choose this fraternity and you'd probably avoid this one. Mm. And it was all kind of unspoken, but those right. were more sort of social clubs and the fraternity. This one might be the Southern frat, and this one like the football frat. So there were kind of obvious reasons why maybe it wasn't the place where all the Jews would end up. But You do not meet many Jews who said, oh, this was a... a a horribly anti-Semitic place, partly because the social codes were such that you were not classy people were not overtly anti-Semitic. Um, it would have come out maybe a little bit behind closed doors. Um, certainly, it, you know, yeah, if a Jew stole your girlfriend as Matt Damon thinks happens in this movie, might he have reached for some sort of, a, you know, in his anger, would he have had access in his, in his brain, in his unconscious to you know, those shady, shifty Jews always taking right. what's not theirs? So, yeah, that might have happened in a case like that. Yeah. But the idea that in the first three months of school, in football season alone, you would have several overt cases of anti-Semitism, strikes me as pretty unlikely. I should add that my father went to um, a preppy boarding school, Shady Side Academy. Uh, class of 1963, so he was there from. Well, he started in middle school. He was there from 57 to 63, and I think he would say he remembers zero instances of anti-Semitism. Oh. So some of this oh, was trumped up for the purposes of a good, you know, law and order episode.
0: I think it. I think it is interesting the way that you were talking about. I think the the sort of maturity of it or the way that I interpreted that, because in a later scene, and we'll get to this actually inside, but when it is revealed that David is Jewish, it comes between a a conversation between two of the adults, two of the alumni. I (laughs)
3: wish we had found that Green could first. Why? St. Luke's would never have taken him. Probably not. Why wouldn't St. Luke's have taken him? Green, they wouldn't have enrolled a Jew, not even for a championship.
0: Obviously is, is overt anti-Semitism, that but- is much but more plausible. But it's behind closed so doors. That's what they're I was like over say. Yeah. drinks and, and uh, you know- It's over and drinks.
2: Think, they're a little drunk. Yeah. And it's also an older generation. Right. And the older people, the trustees of these schools were often very concerned about rising Jewish numbers. Um, yes. And the people who were class of, you know, 18, I mean, 1959, if this is 1959, you talk about someone who's 50 years out, maybe they're a trustee now, they're in their late 60s. And um, they got out of the school in you know 1909, and that's a really different generation. Sure. And World War they're 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 pre World War One and World War Two. That's yep. much more plausible that a few of the old timey trustees would say, "Oh, well, of course you won, but you brought in a Jewish ringer." Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think it also just suggests that difference in level of sort of maturity, the way that it comes out is a little bit more, like you're saying, it's people who hold right. themselves in high regard and don't feel like they're being, you know, nasty or anything like that. It's just, well, I'm a little bit surprised by that. And of course that's anti-Semitic, but I think putting it in the voice of, you know, the students who are supposed to be 16, 17 years old, the way that it would come out a little bit more aggressively feels a little bit more true to what that would yeah. look like. I mean, I, I I believe the way you're saying that it probably wasn't as pre- prevalent or overt the way that they're, they're making it for the movie for the sake of right. know, generating effect. some conflict. Yeah. But exactly. But but it was cool to see how it played out in the older generation like that. I mean, we'll see kind of as the movie goes on.
1: But like throughout the film, one could make the case that David takes everything away from Charlie, which drives him to the point of insanity and like doing all these crazy... Like he's taken his quarterback position by the end of the film. He's taken his girlfriend. You know, uh, I, I feel like he, he's gotten the MVP. Like... Really, people all love that's him. missing.
2: All that's missing is for Charlie's dad to take. David under his I wing. I love you. and yeah. right. say like, we you have, have a nice a son.
1: Summer, Yeah, you have a summer position. Yeah.
2: Would you like a summer
0: position at my firm? Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. It's,
0: and speaking of Charlie's dad, I think you could see this character cast, you know, Charlie is sort of this villain character and you could see that his dad is really harsh or generally in another movie you might see that his dad is really tough on him and puts all this yeah, pressure yeah, on yeah. him and that caused him to lash out. He had a shockingly supportive dad. His dad was like, yeah, yeah don't worry about your brother yeah. getting the big award tonight. Like, you're good. Just enjoy <laughs> your victories. I was a little bit, so I was a little bit, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. The idea
2: that sort of, you know, upper-class Protestant dads in the 50s if you didn't follow your dad to Princeton and you had to go to Amherst or Swarthmore or Williams instead, that you know, you were disowned. That's a th- you know, people weren't substantially meaner in the fifties. I mean, like you say, like dad, there were supportive dads in the fifties, but it works for the you know. I mean, of course, a Dead Poets Society. There's one kid who has to kill himself because he fails right. his father by being interested in the theater. Right? As if, <laughs> as if you couldn't be interested in the theater in the fifties without it drove you to like a mere interest oh, in yeah? the theater was was a risk factor for. Su- suicide
1: I mean that's a great segue to our next beat because like a lot of like familial pressure and academic pressure is definitely seen uh, in in our next beat
2: Oh.
0: One thing you have to mention.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But let me say one, and this Please? is another sort of, another false note is um, these kids were not worried about getting A's at these schools in the fifties. They were t- profoundly anti-intellectual places. Um, really? You okay. know, remember, remember the top 70 or 80 kids at Andover got into, got into Yale or Harvard. So it was you know, like, you weren't sweating. I mean, yeah, you couldn't fail French. So, okay. That, that part makes sense, but sure. you wouldn't, you wouldn't sweat your C or D in French at Andover in the fifties because, you know, you weren't there to, to study. You were there to be gentlemen and 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 row crew and play lacrosse, so it's funny how for the purpose of the plot, they take on a kind of like yeshiva booker intensity about their academics mm. that would
0: never have existed no in, the real,
2: right. in the schools.
1: Good read.
0: It's so interesting. It's a great, it's a perfect segue that I'm going to totally interrupt right now because I, I would be remiss not to mention one more scene from, from the first part that we mentioned and then I'll, I'll pull us back into it. But the only other thing I wanted to point out is that that sequence we spoke about a while ago now with the teacher, with the headmaster confronting David when he's praying and he says, Green, sir. What are you doing here,
3: Green? praying sir i should imagine your god allows prayer during daylight hours i couldn't get away before now it's rosh hashanah Uh, the beginning of the jewish new year i know what rosh hashanah is and it ends at sunset if i recall the custom technically but i didn't think it'd go over too well if i said i couldn't play
0: Uh, For a lot of reasons, I think, is A, not necessarily accurate according to, you know, I think Rosh Hashanah is supposed to be two days. Perhaps this was the second day. Some people do celebrate it as one day. No, David should have come back with, well, in the diaspora, we do two days. Boom. (laughs) uh, There there are a lot of things that he could have and should have said, but the only thing I'll mention is that it just reminded me of those teachers that you have in college. You know, I went to a secular college where there wasn't necessarily so much familiarity with, you know, Jewish holidays, but the best thing you could get is a teacher who, well, the best thing you can get is a teacher who was also Jewish celebrating the holidays and would cancel class those days. But the next best thing was a teacher who knew absolutely nothing about Judaism and would kind of take your word for it. Because when you get a teacher who knows a little bit and not everything to the extent that maybe you practice and comes in with, the uh, well, actually I'm like, I know that this isn't a major holiday for you. So technically you're allowed to right. do this Ooh. and that, that, that kind of trips you up sometimes. So I wanted to call it out. Cause I was very frustrated when he hit him with, the uh, as far as I'm aware, this actually ends at sunset. Cause I don't, I don't like teachers like that.
2: You don't want the teacher who's like, "Wait a minute, the the middle days of Sukkot, you can still take a test on day four of Sukkot."
0: Come like, on, it, that, that's the worst, and that, right. that was Come on. the that was the energy I was getting from the headmaster. Totally. But, um, yeah. But anyways, I'll transition us back in. Remember, we were talking about how they felt a lot of pressure and maybe that wasn't accurate to the time. But sure. this movie thinks it was because we jump back in with the students and we see that they're all struggling in this French class. They have this teacher who's particularly very challenging and intense. And they're they're all really crumbling beneath that. And they actually we see a conversation that all the students have about how their families have these very intense legacies. Some of these Ivy schools, some of them are, you know, I'm fifth generation Harvard and I'm seventh generation Princeton or, you know, whatever it is. So they, they clearly feel a lot of pressure in this course is obviously getting to their heads a little bit. So one student in particular, McGivern, is having a pretty difficult time with this. And we have this big scene where he gives this oral presentation, but he struggles through it and they don't actually give us subtitles or maybe that was just my version of the film, but you don't actually learn what... So you don't know what the French professor is saying to him but it's pretty clear that the French pre- professor is, you know, ad- admonishing him the entire time and chastising his language and trying to call him out and eventually McGivern just sort of gives in. Uh he runs out of the classroom and you know storms out and, and the boys can't find him so there's this extended sequence they're looking for him and I think with the context of dead poet society I was very much expecting him to be, you know. Yeah, that have, was it. Well, also suicide the, to be. Yeah. Also the fact that there's a bucket on the desk
2: Weren't you thinking I he was, was going to stay out of the bucket, bucket and kick yeah. it out from underneath? He was definitely going to yeah. hang himself. Exactly. And then he exactly didn't where was going.
1: not hang himself. Misdirection. We're it for everyone. Misdirection. Yeah. And instead,
0: instead, they just find him on the floor of the classroom. He's having a little bit of a nervous breakdown. He's reciting right. the passage that he was supposed to say in French kind of over and over while, you know, dazing in and out. and. Uh, yeah. We have just this moment where David kind of sits with himself and is like, "Wow, I never thought about students my age having a nervous breakdown." And it's a clear kind of learning moment for him, and I think for the audience itself. And we, he he starts talking to Charlie a little bit, and that's where Charlie shares also some of the pressure that he's been feeling as you know, a quote unquote, Dylan with a you know with the legacy of not just prestigious academic students but also athletic students you know right. it's his, his older brother was you know a recent quarterback for the school so we get a little bit of insight into uh charlie's backdrop and some of the pressures he's
1: facing totally as they're as they're taking McGivern out of the school uh you know david you know holds back he doesn't hold back at all. And he goes right after Mr. McCleary and starts screaming at him and says, yep. You did this, you did this, this is all your fault. Really like making Mr. McCleary, I feel like, question his methods. And uh as at that point, you know, Charlie kind of is like, We don't do that kind of stuff here. You really don't want to hurt your chances. And then I think they have this sort of heart-to-heart conversation. Um, and then I think before we get into the next meet, I think there is kind of like a moment of levity where There's like a cute scene where all the boys kind of bond together and and as an act of sort of uh, revenge, they move Mr. McCleary's car somehow into his classroom. Uh, which is kind of like a fun button which, to end. By, by the way is yeah. a classic prep school prank i believe at Loomis it really? there was
2: a car, there was a car moved inside the the rotunda at founders hall you know the the prissy bachelor prep school teacher is also a stock character and is it's that, fun, okay. you know oh i mean clearly this guy's repressed you know mm-hmm. he's yeah. repressing a lot in his yeah. you know um no question. His, 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 he's he's clenched very very tight <laughs> i actually right. felt i found a little bad for this guy whose whole world is just his cane his little beret at his right. fancy car and then his the French, you know, the boys he has to torture um, in a sadistic, <laughs> right. um, almost erotic, sadistically erotic or erotically sadistic way. So right. I felt a little bit bad for Mr. Cleary. I felt like, um, you know, he's he's not a happy man. Right. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think everyone on campus sort of uh, grows to hate him even more. I wanted to touch on the dockside scene. I th- Yeah, I thought that was a, a powerful scene. It kind of sets up this sort of, he, there was a really beautiful line where You know, I think he says... I envy you. Me? Why?
3: Because if you get what you want, you'll deserve it. And if you don't, you'll manage. You don't have to live up to anybody else's expectations. You are who you are. That's really what draws people to you, David. It's not that you're the cool quarterback. Come on, you're the most popular guy on campus. Well, if my name weren't Dylan, that would be different. Bullshit. David, don't forget my last name's Dylan. Son of Grayson Jr., brother of Grayson 3rd I'm a Dylan. I'm a part of those right connections I was telling you about. People don't care about that.
1: Well, you'll see. Essentially, he's... Dylan is sort of saying that, you know, he has all this privilege to to, to rely on and, and doesn't really have to try as hard. Um, and so he admires that about about David.
0: The, the whole sequence with the car, I get we're talking about the, the kind of context that it that it lends and the way that it makes Mr. Cleary look and, and how it, it kind of emboldens it. Yeah. it. It really felt like, to me, an editor's note after the film that was sort of in post-production, which maybe not this late, but someone read the script and was like, we need another scene of just the boys having fun and maybe right. something to g- in some levity. It has no bearing on the rest of the film. There's no repercussions no. for it. You know, you'd imagine uh, that something. Well, well mis- what Mr. am I missing that happened? Mr. Cleary...
1: Towards the end of the film, starts speaking English to the kids in French class. That was my sort of differentiation. Ooh, uh, at the beginning of the film, he's got a complete asshole about ah, 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 "en français, si vous play." No, like he wouldn't, and that's then the way the you end. teach French. No. no, I know my French teachers the... never
2: spoke never spoke English to us. That's when not an kinda... asshole move.
1: No. Okay, fair. He's fair. a good it's teacher. Like immersion,
2: immersion. He fans. wants to immerse that... them, but the sort of purpose of
0: And if the purpose of that scene was to convince the teacher that he was going to see his car brought into the building and then the entire school, because we have this moment, this reaction scene where the entire school claps and laughs at him, if that's the moment where he says, maybe I've been too tough on these kids, maybe I should soften up a little bit. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense towards the end speaking speak English, English I don't know I, I saw like, like a we slight already, differentiation we all, you know we already had the moment though when David calls him out for you know sending McGovern into this anxiety attack I think that alone could have softened it, it's McGiver, not reason, McGovern not McGovern you McGiver. guys can't keep your gentile <laughs> straight at
2: all um, thank you thank uh, you for the call out <laughs> the scene we needed the scene we needed more of I mean the, the part of the plot that's so thin is the romance with Sally Wheeler right uh, who by the way is clearly a mashup of Sally Draper from Mad Men mm-hmm. and April <laughs> Wheeler from Revolution road because all people in the fifties, all beautiful blonde women were either a Sally or a Wheeler. And this one is both. She's Sally Wheeler. So, um, and you know, we get like two scenes with them and then they're madly in love. I mean that, that, and then of course, when she leaves him, we hardly feel it because, well, we hardly knew her anyway. So, but she's completely vapid. There's nothing particularly appealing about her except she's attractive, um, but has no personality at all. Um, and I, I, I mean, look, the movie was an hour 47, but could we, could five more minutes have been devoted to showing them actually having, could they have one conversation, one authentic Mm, conversation that's not just them mooning at each other? Uh, That would have gone a long (sighs) way for me.
1: I mean, David spent exactly. his entire time with Sally talking about Charlie. It's kind of like yeah. the reverse Bechtel test where it's like two guys always right. talking about the, or whatever, some sort of weird, totally. bizarro Bechtel test where like guys are always just talking about the other guys. He's like,
2: look, pretty soon I'm going to have to have a naked sword fight with him in a locker room. And meanwhile, <laughs> let's talk about your relationship with him back in the woods of Maine when you guys were kids and your families <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> had the
0: adjacent properties. Right, right, right. So, so let's, let's get to Sally and the sure. naked sword fight because I think there's a lot of good stuff there. So I'll pull us along in the plot and we can, sure. chat, we can chat about that. Things have gotten tense between Charlie and David. David, we've seen a couple. We haven't mentioned some of the the quarterbacking scenes, but he's been really shining. And that already was a point of tension between him and Charlie, because Charlie even mentions earlier that he was supposed to be the quarterback before David was kind of brought in as this as this Jewish ringer. Well, he doesn't know he's Jewish at the time, but and David, obviously, with Sally, like we mentioned, we've seen a couple scenes of it, but Charlie refers to Sally as his girl, so to speak. It's clear that Sally didn't necessarily think that they were dating, but Sally clearly takes a liking to David and and we're seeing it happen in the background, but they've kind of started dating and Charlie hasn't noticed yet until finally at this big party post, the St. Luke's game. And we should talk about the St. Luke's game. It's this big moment that David was brought in for. And ultimately there's this, another moment of tension between him and Charlie where Charlie in the middle of the game says, set me up. I'm open. I need to look good in front of my family. Can you just like pass it to me? And uh, David defies the coach's you know, play call throws it to Charlie. It doesn't go well later in the game. Charlie asks for it again. He says, this time I'm going to do it. David instead calls a play where he runs it. He runs it in a great football sequence. This, this movie had some strange football sequences, but he he almost picks up Charlie, throws him into someone else as a sort of block runs in. And this obviously has embarrassed them. So between kind of the football relationship that they've developed, but also be- at, at this alumni party that we mentioned earlier where they're discussing the game, that's when Charlie finally finds out about Sally and David and it sends him spiraling into this anti-David thing. And then ultimately he learns, like we mentioned earlier, from you know overhearing from two different alums talking about it, but he learns that David is Jewish and emboldened by this new discovery and also enraged by kind of everything that's been going on between them. He confronts David in the, in the showers. They're all naked in the showers, kind of washing up after, after the game, I guess, or maybe before bed. And he, he mentions this sort of Jewish thing, which is shocking to everyone around because no one else suspected David of being Jewish and they engage in this, like we said, this sword fight, this very intense wrestling match that that's ultimately broken up. But this kind of changes the trajectory of David's experience at school going forward because now everyone knows he's Jewish and that's when he starts meeting a lot of anti-Semitism from the people who formerly were his peers. Yeah, totally. I mean,
1: there's, uh, you know, because David is from Scranton, he's kind of a lower class than the rest of these kids. So he's all the while he's kind of been working as like a waiter in the cafeteria. They start calling him names. Really, Magoo um, and and Ben Affleck's character Chesty are, are sort of the main perpetrators of this. You know, Dylan as well. But, you know, they they. They call him names. They tease him. Sally doesn't really uh, pick up his calls anymore. They used to chat in the hallways, you know, on the phone. Uh, So he goes to like the swim event and they talk to each other. And, you know, she sort of says this kind of hurtful stuff about all of his, all of her friends have been asking, you know, does his nose get in the way and things like that. And he really, you know, he has a tough, tough go with it. And he, you know, ultimately he comes back to the dorms and he discovers a huge uh, swastika painted on a flag in his room that says, go home, Jew. Uh, David rips it down, scrawls a note that says, whoever wrote this, come see me outside 1030 behind this hall. He like stabs it with a knife on the wall. And, uh, you know, he comes out at 1030, like he mentioned, and no one is there. So he's screaming.
0: Fowl!
1: everyone's kind of looking at him you know off in the distance and here he is in his like wet t-shirt like ripped and all these like cowardly people are kind of inside kind of staring at him um so i'll pause there for a second if that works and and uh, we'll kind of discuss sort of really where the film sort of heats up before our sort of 12 angry men
0: back, back exactly. the film. But yeah, which is exactly what the last third of the film becomes. But right. let's talk about the, uh, the naked shower fight because sure. that, that was obviously an iconic scene. We mentioned at the top, just the way that that has lived on. I mean, people talk about it as the sort of young Matt Damon's, you know, butt scene. And, and there's a lot of homoeroticism there for sure. I didn't know that. Li- I wasn't aware there was a whole discourse around the naked shower scene in school ties. I mean, I it I, might I be small. Great, it might've just, it might have just been in the comments of Letterboxd, the Letterboxd page for this movie, but okay. I was definitely following okay. it a That's bit. great. I mean, now <laughs> that I know about it, I'm going to obviously rewatch it several times a year to get Damon Tush. Exactly. Just, just yeah. find that clip. But that, that whole sequence, and I, I said this before, to me, it really brought on the anxieties of circumcision. And I would love to mm. you know, have this fact checked and just wonder you know, what that might have looked like for all the students there. I mean, David, as, as being Jewish, would have so had a brisk me low. They, they would have. Yeah. F- Okay. What, what,
2: what fact, I'll give you some fact checking. If I don't know it, I'll make it up. Your question exactly. is, would the Gentiles have been circumcised?
0: Exactly. Was, was my yes. anxiety that he would be the only one circumcised? Well, so they would first have of all, been, this
2: is hardly his first group shower at, at the school, right?
0: So, and that I had anxiety. <laughs> right. I was going to mention that because there's an earlier scene with it. And I noticed he was wearing a towel around his waist. And yes, he's showering naked. Otherwise, you know, we kind of see his mm-hmm. butt because... That's mostly for the camera because they didn't want to show his penis on screen. But right. I, I I convinced myself that maybe he had just been angling himself and being a no. little bit more clever and careful with his towel. Wasn't there an
1: earlier scene where he said, oh, I'm going to shower later? Someone's like, oh, are you coming now? Or he said, oh, I'll come later. I thought oh, there right. was something like that, maybe. So maybe he's showering something
2: separately. something like that, but he he eventually showers with everyone. We see a couple so, scenes of it. I'll just speak for myself and my era. I mean, I'm 48 years old. How old are you guys? I'm 39. Okay. I'm 24 okay, so let's let's do a poll Sounds here Daniel right. when you're so you're you're thirty nine Yes. so when I was growing up, every boy I knew was circumcised. um like, I knew my friends were circumcised. I was in lots of you know locker rooms and gyms. There was, i think, and i've I've written or at least maybe I never wrote the piece, I've reported and researched on this a little bit. <laughs> And low, numbers were always lower in uh, minority communities, black and Latino communities. Boys were less likely to be circumcised. But mid-century America, like I want to say 1920, 1980, most uh, hospital births, the, pedi- the the OBGYN or the pediatrician would circumcise the boy unless the parents specifically asked him not to. It was oh, considered okay. A so I'm guessing, Daniel, that you grew up, maybe you didn't look as, at as many of your friends' penises as I did, but that most of your peers right. were circumcised no matter their religion. Uh,
3: I'm going to yeah. say with – I'm going to say with Harry,
2: that's less true because you, it, it changed. It started to change. Tell me about your friend's a statistic.
0: I was going (laughs) to say, it's not a statistic I have offhand. I trust what you're
1: saying, but generally. I didn't didn't do a lot of sports, like, uh, you know, locker room kind of sports in high school. You weren't in as many
2: locker rooms as I, I understand. So I went to high school where they required you to do sports. come on. So,
1: um,
2: (laughs) so, Today, what's interesting is it is shifting back to being a marker of Judaism because Mm. your average, like your average bourgeois, bohemian, Bobo, NPR, tote bag, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, American, blue state, white, liberal, Howard Dean, blah, blah, blah couple does not circumcise their son these days. It is seen, they, they have moved back. It is not the sort of Interesting. cultural elite position anymore. They've stopped doing it unless mm. they're Jewish. And even many Jewish families don't do it anymore. So it is shifting back to being something that happens to poor kids whose parents don't intercede in the hospital, or they just think it's a poor white kids or Jews. But I think you're wrong about this scene Harry. I think everyone would there would yeah. have been circumcised in mid-century America. So,
0: and I, and I, I accept that completely. I think there's still well, a read of the scene as well. I, I think there's still a vulnerability. There's, he's being laid bare. And I, I don't know if this is intentional, but I do think the read of, well, that is sort of his his Jewishness on scale. It's the Jewishness sure. you can't hide. Yeah, you can't sure. hide it by taking off of a, yeah. a sort of Jewish star. I think there's something going on in that scene, you know, even if that might not have been I mean, an actual. Yes, no, A hundred percent, you're totally right. But the bigger thing going on there to see that I just didn't remember is like it's
2: a big gay orgy. I mean, aside from that, (laughs) the bigger thing is it's Spartacus. Is it's it's porkies but all male. It's just a big it's a big sword fight, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like metaphorical in a sense that he's being laid bare, he's open, he's naked, he's vulnerable. And it is that this time that happens to like coincide with the fact that this news has come out. And so Charlie decides to take the opportunity to kind of expose him uh, to all the other classmates, at which point they get mad at him. But like maybe this is a good time to bring it up. But I feel like every time David has his sort of like, hey, I'm Jewish the initial response of the people who he was closest with, whether it's with Reese, his roommate or with Dylan or with his girlfriend or whatever, it's like, well, oh, why didn't you tell me? Like, why Why are you, you know, I feel like it's, you know, they put the onus back on him as if it's like, you should have told me. And then I would have, we would have been, you know, copacetic, but now that you hid it from me, I think I don't know. What do you? What are your reads on that? Because maybe that's just an easy out to be like, oh, well, this is a, a different reason to hate you because you're dishonest." Rather than you told me, and you're Jewish, and I'll hate yeah, you. for Yeah, well, that. it's, like, dam- I don't it's know. damned
2: if you do and damned if you don't. Right. If you tell us what we'll you okay. for that, if you hide it, then you're shifty and shady. And but I also think it's also sincere. I mean, nobody likes to discover sure an important fact about people close to them that that's been withheld. <laughs> they people feel a little bit cheated. And look, I mean, if you're if I'm his. Uh, Dad, I probably say, you know, knowing now what I know then, with perfect hindsight, you probably want to say to him, like, on your first day there, you know, the first time some kids bust out with some anti-Semitic stuff, say, hey, I'm Jewish, that's not cool. And, like, let them deal with it and let it all hang out and, you know, whip it out and put it on the table and there it is. I think he misplayed that, but also it's understandable why he would play it the way he did.
1: Totally. I mean, he was advised to. So um, I'm just going to kind of wrap up our our film here, so we can kind of get to the ratings and things like that. But as the film progresses, we have our final exams. Throughout the film, we're talking about history and dates, and they kind of do this rapid fire thing, uh, you know, as they're studying. But um, Charlie decides that you know he's the guy's a putz, and so he's he hasn't really studied as well. So he's just, he's going to make a little cheat sheet for himself. And as they're taking the quiz, uh, you know, he's got a little piece of paper like this with it on his hand, and he's constantly looking. Um, But David spots him, as does Van Kelt, who was another uh, classmate. And they see him cheating. And, you know, Charlie, again, being a putz, he drops the cheat sheet on the floor as he's making his way out. The teacher finds it, and they decide. The teacher says, Someone was cheating, and we have our honor code here that everyone signed on the front of the test. If if you don't tell me who it is, everyone's going to fail. So we need somebody to confess and come forward. So, they decide that the 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 students convene and they meet and they debate. You know, sort of who who it was. They they seem to think that it was uh, Connor's, the sort of redheaded guy who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wasn't as learned. Cole Right, Cole Hauser, who, you know, he's also accused of cheating on a French test, so they initially turn on him, and then, you know, they, they, oh, well, it was this guy, this guy, this guy, and then ultimately, Charlie, sensing this opportunity, um, convinces, you know, convinces everyone that it was David. David, prior to this, confronts Charlie and has said, I know it was you, just sort of confess, we'll get this all over with, and... Charlie goes to the lengths of even bribing David, and David, you know, says no. So they have this long discussion, and David. 12 Angry Men. A 12 Angry Men situation where it's very heated. Everyone's jackets and ties are undone. They're kind of pacing the room and things like that. And, uh, you know, ultimately both David and Charlie plead their case to the rest of the students, but everyone sort of agrees that it's David who needs to go and uh, talk to the headmaster. So David goes and he confesses to the headmaster saying, you know what? It was me. I did it. And uh, after hearing his uh, plea, the headmaster, you know, the camera sort of pans and we see that Van Kelt is sort of sitting by the fire and saying, you know what, David, I'm on your side. I saw Charlie do it. And so uh, we're going to, we're going to expel him. And, He pleads David to stay. You know, he says, we'll just forget the whole thing happens. And we'll put a clip in here. But David says, good, then it's settled. I'd like to forget
3: this ever happened.
1: No, sir. You're never going
3: to forget it happened because I'm going to stay here. And every day you see me, you'll remember that it happened.
1: And in the final scene, David, uh, you know, sees Charlie getting whisked away in his giant sort of limousine and uh this he says you know something
3: i'm still gonna get into harvard
1: and in 10 years nobody's gonna remember any of this
3: you'll still be a goddamn jew you'll still be a prick
1: and so he walks away all by himself and uh and that is where our film ends i just wanted to quickly point out that i in reading for this film there were a few alternate endings that were shot You know, so there is this scene where David walks off into the quad by himself. That is how the film ends as we've seen it. But there were other scenes uh, where they had all the friends kind of joined together and walking with David. And ultimately, like the audience sort of felt it didn't test as well because they felt that like it was a little too saccharine that like everybody loves David now and they all kind of walk off. And I think the idea of David walking by himself as this sort of lone Jew is kind of where we're at. So... I'll stop there and open it up. I just want to
2: say, I think that, um, that was a moment when his, when his instant, his power of instant prophecy failed him when he (laughs) sees Matt Damon in the car at the end and he (laughs) says, and you'll still be a prick. I mean, what he should have said is like, and you'll still be a liar or, mm-hmm. and you'll still have no honor. Like he right. should have, or, yeah, and, yeah. and you'll still be someone who knows that, you know, your brother, I mean, if you really went to cut him, right? Like right. you'll still be someone who knows that your parents love your brother more. I mean, but something <laughs> ah, that's a just good one. calling someone a prick is pretty easy to brush off. Right. I felt like he right. could have, he could have really, land as hard
0: as I think he hopes it would, it doesn't
2: right. land as hard as I wanted it to. Fair. Um, yeah, you know, but uh, anyway, I do think that it's probably a better ending than if everyone had embraced him or if Amy yeah. Locane, if Sally
0: Wheeler had run up to him and like, I Love you. Yeah, planted a big yeah. kiss on him, no. and I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> the the other thing I want to point out in the scene because it, it actually references what we were just talking about, but there's this big moment where where he's where David is kind of right where he has that moment with the headmaster where the headmaster says, we know you didn't cheat. You're fine. And David says, well, the honor code, which obviously is a big deal in this film that clearly states that if you know someone cheated and don't report it, that's also a violation of the honor code. And he's met with this response of, well, that's why, because in the beginning we were told that the honor code is an evolving document that they, you know, the students update every year and they say this right. is clearly an area where we recognize it can change. And just to reference what we were talking about earlier about, you know, whether he should have actually owned up to his, Jewishness from the beginning. I think there is a statement there with the honor code that it's, you know, keeping this to yourself or forcing yourself to admit it is almost not the problem, right? Because it's kind of this framing of the honor code saying that if you see someone cheating, you have to say it. Right. And David seems to have functioned in this way of, well, I didn't say anything about my Judaism. So in some ways he was... Mm. Villainizing himself, maybe, or he felt guilty about that. Like everyone was telling him, You should have mentioned us, withholding it was a sin. And the honor code is kind of saying there are circumstances where maybe you're not at fault for not mentioning it. And it's almost absolving him for what I think we were calling him out earlier for maybe he should have mentioned it. I think they're saying it's okay that he did. Do you feel like Dick Wolf had that reading in mind? That's that's the biggest question with this. Pod. I think you've you know, outsmarted
2: I, the, the screenwriter. <laughs> um, I think it's important to mention that Van Kelt, as played mm-hmm. by Randall Battenkoff, uh, you know Batenkov is a Jewish actor, and what's oh. interesting is you know they did find oh. some Jews for this cast. Cole Hauser is right. Jewish. There were some. You know, okay, right? Uh, Cole Hauser is Jewish. Van Kelt
0: is Jewish. Uh, so you know they found some, just not just not for the lead. Yeah, right, right, right. That's a good point. The, Go ahead. The, Go ahead. The other thing I want to mention before we cut to break, because I know we want to get into rankings is just, there's that moment where, you know, David responds, like we said, every time you see me, you know, I'll be a reminder to you about this, you know, the, the, what you did. And that notion of being a reminder, I was trying to figure out a Jewish read on it. Like, why does he want to be this kind of powerful reminder? Why doesn't he want to move on from this? But mm-hmm. it almost felt like this very Christian idea of, of the wandering Jew as the Jew is kind of kept around, kept alive as a reminder of, you know, their suffering, of their torment, of what, mm-hmm. of the pain they experienced. And even though the, the headmaster's like, let's move on, from this you'll get you know full privilege he's like no i want to remind you and it's a more negative reminder it's i want you to feel bad about what was done to me but it really does feel like it's playing in with this christian idea of of the wandering jew and it wasn't necessarily that that strong jewish finish that i think i was hoping to read into that moment and i want to see if you guys agree with that
2: i uh i hadn't seen that i think it's plausible what i did see is that all of this happens and it's only thanksgiving break Imagine the red, there's a whole, there's two semesters (laughs) left to go. I mean, what's going to happen to him during basketball season or lacrosse season? There's, there's so, so much. uh, You're right. The football
0: season's going to come to an end soon. That's true. Football's
2: over. No, they've played their arch rival. That's always the last game of the year. Football's over. He can coach the rest of the year. He's into Harvard.
1: That's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I as long as we're on board the stretch train, I wanted to talk about like, uh, and I could save this for the back half, but you know, just the idea of like, like with Judaism, there's often these, um, often it's physical things, but a lot of these like acts that we do to be reminder to remind us of the past, whether it's like the Seder reminding us of, of, of the exodus of Egypt or the mezuzah that has the passages about Egypt and seed and all these physical manifestations of and are like Jewish reminders. So I kind of like, obviously a stretch uh, you know but that's what we do on this podcast
0: and you know that's true though that that this jewish idea of always remembering thing i mean you're you're reminding me of the concept of amalek which was the you know this this group of people that attacked the jews you know our jewish ancestors when they were you know in the desert you know how many years ago and we have this kind of yearly reminder of we need to tell the story because we don't forget the pain that was stricken on us so that read and i'm totally uh you know flipping to your read daniel because i think you're totally right like that that is a Jewish practice of no, we don't move on and pretend that things don't happen. We remember right. the pain and suffering we experience. We remember the pain that our, you know, our enemies or our antagonists caused us. And I'm not letting you guys get away with this so easily. You know, the, the easy answer for the administration is to say, let's forget, move on, don't forget, sue yeah. us, you know, yeah. in, in modern day lingo. I think Dylan is actually a descendant of a
1: I, I actually read that somewhere. So it totally Exactly what I was getting at. Yes. Totally makes sense. Right. Let's take a quick break. And we'll come back and we'll give our ratings for the film School Ties. How does that sound? All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Mark Oppenheimer to give our ratings of the film School Ties. What we'll do is we'll give it a, each person will kind of give it on a scale of one to five Jewish stars based on cast and crew. Uh, you know, in front and behind the camera, Jewish content and Jewish themes. Harry, would you like to go first?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just uh, talk about it a little bit. You know, we mentioned this in the beginning, the cast and crew, uh, not not a very Jewish cast. You know, I, I think I mentioned this in the beginning. I was going to call it out. We obviously had a conversation about the athletic, British, Jewish type casting that non-Jewish, especially because that was my read of it, I think in some ways made me feel like, oh, so they needed to bring in this, you know, 6'2 Brendan Fraser, this non-Jewish guy to play a part that I didn't recognize as at least filmically Jewish. I mean, the truth is I'm sitting here as, you know, a six foot three Jewish kid who like, I I won't say I resemble Brendan Fraser in any way or nor do I match his athletic prowess in the film. Although I actually think I read that he didn't know very much about football and didn't like the sport. And that's a little bit clear in the way (laughs) that he's framed because he's not the most athletic looking actor, I would say. But that I think to me came off as a little bit, it's not always so relevant when, I think you cast Jews with non-Jewish actors. We've spoken about Jew face a little bit, and I don't think I come down so rigid about that. But in this case, where the film is so much about his Jewish experience and the anti-Semitism that he faces and you know this athletic gifts that I think he has, it came off, it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, but maybe that's not something to penalize the film for so much. You know, in terms of also just the, the content, you know, we spoke about uh Dick Wolf and, and his writing into that. So I think that lends a lot of Jewishness to it. The content itself. Obviously very Jewish, you know, from the beginning, that's that's that really is the big, you know, it's not just he's Jewish for Jewish sake, like that is the uh, conflict of the film. It doesn't end with the big football game. It's not like a movie where he makes the big throw at the end and everyone embraces him because he saved them with football. The movie really does culminate in this question of honor and the honor that he gets as a Jew. And once he's out as a Jew, how do people treat him differently? So... I actually think content is a really big part of the Jewishness of the film. Obviously, Mm -hmm. thematically, I think it's all in there. I'll give you all space to kind of fill in those gaps that I've left there, because I know there's more to say about how Jewish this film is. But that's kind of where I'm at with this. I I think I'm going to end up giving this a pretty high score, but I won't reveal that until I hear from from the two of you. Mark, how about yourself? Yeah, I thought the cast was
2: terrific. I I like that this is the first uh, co-casting of Baffleck and Cole Hauser, who of course will be reunited just a a little while later uh, in Days to Confused, uh, one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to agree. It's an, I think, I'm not sure that it's an extended Law and Order script, but you can definitely see the same hand at work. I actually think it was better than most Law and Order scripts. I didn't think I didn't know Dick Wolf had this in him. I think it's a strong, I think it's a strong script. Um, And in terms of the Jewishness, I mean, look, props to any movie that has you know a little bit of a vino malcino in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm gonna mark it down a little bit for the kind of heightened. Uh, and I think cartoonish anti-Semitism. I think it's not true to the Jewish experience right. that he would have faced like a swastika on his uh, door. Like they didn't have to well, lean so. on it that much. I think that like the the trauma, such as it was, was in the subtleties, not in the overt anti-Semitism. And so I think it's a little bit untrue to the Jewish experience, and it makes it somewhat less of an authentic Jewish movie in that way.
1: That's yeah, definitely a, a good case for it. Um, I have a very simple rubric for a lot of my, uh, you know, cast and crew, we kind of mentioned, we have Dick Wolf, we have Robert, uh, we have Robert Mendel as director. Um, and we have a few Jewish cast members, so I'll knock that out pretty quickly. Um, content, you know, I always like to think, is there a rabbi? Is there a keepa? Is there prayer being said? Is there a Jewish star? So we, we tick a few of those boxes like content wise. And then the, this, just this notion of, of anti-Semitism sort of festering in the the background and then becoming more prominent as we get later in the film. Um, I think it's, you know, highly, highly Jewish in that regard, uh, thematically, you know, the themes of anti-Semitism, the themes of otherness, like, you know, he's also this sort of like scrub who's an outsider and very different from the rest of the folks. Um, so there is that sort of otherness, which I, which I very much liken to, um, the Jewish experience as well as like other, you know, minority experiences and things like that. So, um, Yeah, I think I'm kind of locked in with my number, but, uh, uh, you know, Harry,
0: where are you at numbers wise? Let's talk. Let's talk Turkey. Absolutely. I think there's a little bit of an accuracy and maybe a detail that I I do find lacking. And I loved what you pointed out, Mark, just about the way that it casts anti-Semitism because writ large, I think this movie, you know, kind of from a distance is very much. Doing all the things, it's it's addressing this sort of anti-Semitism, it's empowering this Jewish character. He's you know has to protect his identity, like you were saying, Daniel, with some thematically all that is there, the otherness, the you know, the honors, the honor system, which obviously isn't strictly a Jewish ideal. That that's something that extends beyond that. But I think that's all there broadly. I think when you get a little more granular about it, and part of that is just my you know, Jewish education and experience and being able to poke holes in some of the little things, but even just I don't think the movie itself cares about the granularity so much. You know, we have the big symbolic moments. We have the Magain David necklace, his, his school tie, as we mentioned earlier. We have the big swastika, but I don't think that's uh, it's so clear. So with all that being said, it, it's clearly Jewish. It's Jewish in the summary. I think I'm still going to give it above a four, maybe a 4.25 because it really is there. But it's not crossing that threshold of being as Jewish as some of the other films we've seen. How about you, Mark? There's a scale of what?
2: One to five Jewish, Jewish stars. stars. Yeah, one to five Jewish stars. Um, I'm gonna give it a little bit more than that. I would have liked to see a rabbi in the room with the headmaster and the Episcopal priest mm. at the end, like yeah, as okay. we prepare to expel you or re- or repair you or bring you, you know, allow you to make teshuva. We we we, we recruited a rabbi from Boston. We had him take the train in. Uh, that <laughs> right. would have been a nice <laughs> touch. Um, Maybe the bus. You know. So, but I, you know, yeah, I'm gonna give it a four point three six. Ooh, wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah. As far as like ratings, I would say I'm probably gonna come in right kind of in the same areas where you two are at, um, you know, very strong, uh, very strong thematically. And then content wise, I feel like the of the Jewish moments, I think a lot of it were, these were presented for sort of, not necessarily accuracy, but sort of a heightened element so you could very clearly tell that these were Jewish things. So I'll probably come in at like four and a quarter. I did want to thank you, Mark, very much for being here you today on, on Jews on Film. At this time, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to uh, plug or promote anything going on, you know, in the Look, podcast. anyone... Yeah,
2: I mean, I, I just finished an eight-part podcast called Gate Crashers, uh, The Hidden History of Jews in the Ivy League. It deals with a lot of these topics, and anyone who who jammed with this conversation would absolutely love Gate Crashers, available on all of the, the major podcast platforms, and and thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being here on Jews on Film. I wanted to remind everyone to check us out on uh, all the social platforms. You can get us wherever you listen to podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, youtube did i miss anything harry i think you got it all right well thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you later Mm bye-bye Jews on film is hosted and produced by harry otten and daniel zana harry edited this episode make sure to follow us on instagram at Jews on film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes thanks for listening